Okay, so tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got started in the disability community. Awesome. Well, um, I am a little bit about myself. Um, for starters, my name is Lindsay Mandolini. I use the pronoun she, her. Um, I'm wearing a long sleeve blue sweatshirt. Um, it's Friday, so it's nice to be able to dress a little casual at home. Um, and I have glasses and my hair is pulled back. Um, I'm coming to you from Denver, Colorado, where I live with my wife and our one-year-old daughter. Um, and your second question was how I get started in the disability, yeah, in the disability community. community. Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up, um, if I think all the way back, you know, when was like my first experience and it, I, it would be when, um, I grew up with an uncle who had an intellectual and developmental disability. So I think it was, you know, being raised in a family where disability was just a part of our makeup and who we are and to see how my aunts and uncles and parents and grandparents interacted and advocated for him um, was really meaningful. And I remember being a little kid and having my uncle say, hey, run and grab me a Budweiser, will ya? And, you know, I'd run around and grab him his Budweiser. And so to see that, you know, it disability just wasn't a thing. And if someone else made it a thing, that's where the advocacy really stepped in. Um, you know, my grandma was an advocate in the Catholic church in Michigan and getting, um, you know, what we would call like Sunday school, uh, getting that curriculum um, to be more inclusive to include my uncle. So, I would say that's where it started. And then throughout grade school, I was always drawn to, um, you know, to classes where there would be other kids with disabilities. And I, I, I felt at home. I felt that that was um, my community and um, they became dear friends. And so then when I went to college, I thought, how do I, how do I get a career where I'm working with folks with disabilities? And that at that point, all that I knew was an option was special education. So I went into teaching and it was really around that time that I was diagnosed with ADHD. And at that point, things started to click and it was like, wow, I knew that I always thought differently. I knew that I could, you know, see problems and situations in a way that other people couldn't. Um, but I didn't know why. Um, I knew that I struggled throughout school and I didn't know why and that I learned differently. And so as I was training to become a special education teacher, um, I, I started to learn about ADHD. I started to learn about different disabilities and I was like, oh, that fits. That makes sense for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that really helped me to uh, to teach my students in a different way, to see them for who they are and to get really interested about um, how do they learn and what are they interested in? What are they curious about? And then kind of pairing that with their learning style and teaching them how do you harness your strengths and move into the workplace, move into spaces, knowing what your needs are and advocating for them. Um, so yeah, so so that's kind of one section. And then I pivoted a little bit um, and I worked with a grassroots organization. It was a camp um, that 
helped uh, serve folks with intellectual disabilities. And um, I volunteered there for about 15 years and joined their staff. And that was more um, getting into advocacy and um, in service-related work. Um, and then kind of following, I guess we're, we'll just go on a, my career path. So then I did some work abroad. Um, I lived in Mozambique and Zambia, Botswana, Kenya, Uganda, a lot of sub-Saharan African countries and worked with uh, local organizations of persons with disabilities there, um, supporting in different ways. And it was those experiences that really made me think about my understanding and experience in the US and then my experiences in different countries and starting to see things move, move beyond a service level um, into a systems level. And so I got really curious about international policy, international law related to disability, um, you know, the CRPD and, and how different laws intersect for people with disabilities. And that led me to get my master's degree, which mm -hmm. I just wrapped up in June. So sorry, that was really long winded. Um, yeah, congratulations but... on that. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Um, my next question is, tell me a little bit about your work as a researcher and just your work in disability inclusion as and as like an advocate. Yeah, so it's, um, I'll tell you a little bit about my research first, um, because that's more specific, and then I can talk a little bit more broadly. But um, my research has primarily been focused on gender and disability, and um, which I think is a really critical uh, intersection. You know, the when we think about mainstream movements, the gender movement has really lacked um, representation of disability. And the disability movement has really lacked the intersection of gender and in including um, women with disabilities and our voices, as well as the LGBTQ plus community and disabled voices there. And so um, I, you know, also identifying as a queer woman, I think that intersectionality is critical. And, um, and so, yeah, my focus is gender and disability and, um, at the time that I was starting my research is when um, the conflict in Ukraine was was just starting to break out. And, mm -hmm. you know, Leslo, whenever there is a major event, whether it's armed conflict, a mass shooting in the United States or a natural disaster, I immediately think about, OK, if it's in a school, what are those kiddos with disabilities? How are they navigating this space? Um, you know, and so then when thinking about in Ukraine, I was people who I was hearing stories left and right of people trying to flee and evacuate and not being able to or being abandoned by their families. And, you know, then trying to resettle and being in, a, you know, a temporary shelter and not having their accommodations and meeting barrier after barrier after barrier. And so that is really what birthed my um my study that I did this spring that was on gender and disability in humanitarian context um, and looking at how do DPOs and OPDs effectively protect and provide access to women and girls with disabilities in those settings. 
Um, and I, I loved that research. Um, it really opened my eyes to the power of uh, qualitative research specifically, especially within the disability community where there are multiple intersecting identities and there's complexity that just cannot be um, illustrated in, in straight data points. Um, you really need to hear stories, understand experiences, um, to then see how, how does policy need to shift. So um, the, the results of that study, I can share my report with you. Um, it ended up in a, a model of normative conditions and recommendations for uh, those organizations to effectively protect and provide access. Um, and then one other piece of the finding that is really exciting to me is that it culminated in a composite narrative. And so it aggregates the data to find what were the common experiences of those women and creates a single story. So it's a story of a woman growing up in Syria before the Civil War in 2012 um, and what her what pre-existing barriers she was experiencing um, before the war living in a patriarchal society, um, you know, what, how disability was viewed in that setting. Um, and then kind of, it follows her throughout, um, throughout evacuation during the conflict, um, fleeing to a refugee camp and over the border, um, into, um, oh my gosh. Oh, into Wavel. I was going to say, I can't, I can't remember which refugee camp she was in, mm -hmm. into the Wavel refugee camp. Um, and then her return. And so I get really excited about this and I could talk about it all day. Um, but I think that what the composite narrative does is it takes academic methods, but brings to life those experiences. So that when we try to go to policymakers and, um, you know, and, and advocate for rights and legislation and changing at an international level, we're armed with a, something that's really practical. So you compare that the data and the kind of scholarly side with the practical implications that are presented in a way that is digestible for non-academic folks. Mm -hmm. Um, my next question is, how do you make things more inclusive for people with disabilities? You know, what sorts of methods, processes, mm -hmm. stakeholders even do you use to make that happen? That's a great question. Um, and I wish, I wish that I could say that I have a clear cut process or method. Um, but I think what I have found to be most effective and impactful is bringing a lens of inclusion and access to every conversation, every interaction, every everything that I do. And so whether that is in the workplace or that's being on a board or that is in my own home life, um, I think the way that I am able to make things more inclusive for people with disabilities is to raise awareness and share my own journey and my own story. Um, to say in any opportunity that I have, to say, 
Disability is a natural part of human existence. It is a part of all of us. We will all experience a dis having a disability at some point in our lives if we have not already. So it's not something that can be separated. Um, it's not something that is particular to a certain identity. It cross cuts all demographics, all sexual orientation, faith traditions, socioeconomic status, to help people understand that disability is a part of us. It's a part of, um, and, and, and we have to, we have to become more aware of that. Um, I think our lack of awareness has led to, many of the barriers and the systemic injustices that we have experienced um, and that now folks are kind of waking up to and being like, man, we got to dismantle that. It's it's not about the individual with a disability. It's about society and the barriers that have put in, been put in place. Um, so I think it's it's that lens and it's having super open conversations and engaging people in it and doing exactly what you're doing. I'm saying there are these issues. Let's get them out there. Let's talk about them and wrestle with them. And, you know, disability is not a bad word. Let's say it. Um, and let's let's bring people along um, through education and awareness um, so that there is a comfort level in in talking about it yeah uh yeah yeah i agree completely um tell me a little bit about the impact that your work has on the disability community so i think in education um it's super important for teachers, not just special education teachers but general education teachers all teachers to um to work really hard to create inclusive spaces for their students. So the impact of my work in education was through advocacy. It was through encouraging us to think about a universal design of learning in our classrooms, full inclusion and participation of students with disabilities. Um, and in seeing those accommodations as a human right to access, not something that is a special request that we're not doing a favor by offering an accommodation, but that is a person's right in order to access something. Um, throughout throughout my nonprofit work, I would say, you know, the impact there, a lot of that was through training. Um, I did a ton of training of volunteers um, that focused on disability justice. And I, I think the biggest impact there was um, recognizing while that training was specific to the, to a camp environment, it's the ripple ripple effect. So it's, what are you learning here that now you're taking out into the world with you? How is it shifting your lens to see things differently? Um, to recognize when you see a barrier, to say something, to make that change, that it is not just on the disability community to advocate, but it's on all of us to, to become more aware of those barriers and to help break them down. Mm-hmm. My last question is, what lessons can people, companies, and others take away from this? How can they, you know, build an inclusive space for people with disabilities? Mm. So I think, I think with this question, um, certainly there are tangible ways to make spaces more inclusive. Um, but I... 
I tend to stray away from that because I think sometimes when we have an an accessibility audit or a checklist, that's what it is. It remains a checklist for someone with a disability rather than pausing and stepping back and getting curious and involving folks with disabilities to say, you, if they're not at a table, we're, we're weaker because we don't have someone with a disability at this table, that that voice is necessary and needed in order for us to be stronger um, as a team, as a community. Um, so I think my recommendation would be to seek out those voices, seek out disabled voices, um, amplify those voices. If you get in touch with advocates and activists, like we are all around you and we are just looking for the chance to share. We, you know, we, we want, we want to help. We want to, to expand awareness. So just ask, um, and recognize when there are gaps and that there, there is a gap if you do not have a disabled voice at your table. Um, and, and to be open to seeing new perspectives, um, recognizing that we're all just human, right? Um, mm-hmm. We and that's the beauty of it. That's the strength of it. Is that we um, we are all different. We think differently. We do things differently. And um, yeah, and to 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 see that as beauty and strength and interdependency is what holds us all together. So that's more of like a macro perspective and can sound a little hokey sometimes of we are all one, but we are. Yeah, that, 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 that's, a, that's a good, that's a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Did that answer?